Hey everybody, this is Josh Gunter with The Gathering Springfield. Thank you so much for joining in today's episode. This first season, we've been talking about the glorious return of Jesus Christ, and we just have a few episodes left. Today, we will be discussing Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 20, which speaks of the return of Jesus Christ and the millennial reign that is established after his return. It's going to be a great study, so let's ask the Father to give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying through the Scripture to the church today. Hey, it's another Wednesday, which means another episode in our podcast. It is hard to believe that we only have a couple more episodes left in this first season. We've had a great time talking about the last days and the return of Christ, the events leading up to his return, and the things that are going to happen after his return. If you haven't been able to listen to the previous episodes, I want to highly encourage you to do that as it completes the study, each episode building on the other. I highly encourage you to start with the Gospels and what Jesus taught about his return, go in to see what the apostles had to say and how they taught the early church about the last days, then land in Revelation and walk through the book of Revelation with the understanding and the revelation of what Jesus and the apostles had already previously taught. And then each of these chapters through Revelation, it's a lot easier to understand what they're talking about when you already have the foundation of Christ's teaching and the apostles' teaching. Today we're going to read Revelation chapter 19, chapter 20, which are great chapters that talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, give some of the details of Christ stepping back to this earth, the defeat of the Antichrist, the fall false prophet, Satan, the millennial kingdom. I'm really excited to go through these chapters today. Revelation 19 verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. That's speaking to about what we read last week, Babylon, and we won't get back into that. You can go back and listen to last week's episode. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. Again, we talked about the twenty-four elders and the four creatures in previous uh, episodes, so if you want more details about them, go back and, and listen to those episodes. But here, this very first chapter is opening up with this heavenly adoration and worship for what God has done. In the last days, as Christ enters the earth, as he comes back to the earth, he defeats the Antichrist, he defeats the spirit of Babylon, he defeats all his enemies, he sets things right. And heaven is declaring and praising him for all that he's done. That's that's essentially what we have at the beginning of this chapter. There's not a lot of mystery as to what's being spoken of here. What's happening is heaven and those in heaven are rejoicing at the things that God has done in these days. Verse 6 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with pure fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." 
This passage here is talking about the marriage of Jesus Christ to his to his bride. The church is, is the bride of Christ. As the multitude is giving praise to God, it says that the bride has made herself ready, and it was granted her to clothe herself with the pure fine linen bright pure. And it says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The church has dressed herself with righteous deeds, righteousness, the righteousness of God, and is serving him faithfully. And it's the faithful church that has clothed herself in the righteousness of of Christ and the righteous deeds of the saints uh, that are going to spend eternity with the Lord. This next section here reminds us of a, a parable that Jesus taught during his earthly ministry. Verse 9 says, The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. John here is encountering this holy angel, and after he's given the revelation, he actually bends down to start worshiping the angel, and the angel says, No, I'm not God. You worship God. Don't worship me. The thing I want to pull out of here is as he says that blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It reminds us of the parable that Jesus taught about the wedding feast. In fact, I want to read that. Uh, Matthew 22 says, And Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. It's like this wedding feast that this man gave his son uh, at his marriage. He invited the guests in, and this, they didn't come, so he opened the door to others. And they, as they came, they all came to the wedding feast, and some wasn't uh, dressed in the wedding garments. And he said, cast them out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is saying that there's a day coming where the Father has prepared a great banquet, or this wedding feast for the Son, where the Son is forever united with his bride, and in that celebration, there's wedding garments that are the righteous deeds of the saints. And if they're not wearing those garments, then they will not be welcomed in the wedding banquet. Here in chapter 19, we get revelation of the day when Jesus returns, he raptures his church, and then there's a great marriage supper of the Lamb. And those who are invited are those who are wearing the wedding garments that are bright and pure, a fine linen, and they're the righteous deeds of the saints who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. Then verses 11 through uh, 21, we get greater understanding in detail of what it's going to look like when Christ returns. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Remember, when Jesus comes back, he's not coming gently riding on a donkey or as a baby in a manger, but he's coming to declare war against the Antichrist, against the false prophet, against the followers of the Antichrist who have been persecuting uh, the saints, who have been killing the saints. He's coming to destroy his enemies. He says he comes to judge and make war. Verse 12, his eyes are like flames of fire. And on his head are many diadems, which speaks of his great glory and his authority. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So let's talk about this in a practical way. Whenever Jesus returns at the seventh trumpet... He's going to rapture his church, and the Bible says that we are gathered together with him in the air. Here, 
in uh, Revelation chapter 19, it says that when he comes, then the armies of heaven are going to be with him in fine linen, wearing white garments, following him on white horses. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword with which he strikes down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now the the sword that comes out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword, whether that is a literal sword or it's figurative speaking about the words of his mouth, uh, that's how he slays his enemies because here in a little bit we'll read that he literally slaughters or kills the Antichrist by the breath of his mouth. The emphasis isn't on whether the sword is literal or, or not. The emphasis is that Jesus Christ is coming in power and glory and he is going to defeat his enemies by the words of his mouth. It says that he's going to strike down the nations. Again, he's striking down the nations who are Antichrists, who are following the Antichrist and are not in subjection to Jesus. Also, it says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. If you read Revelation chapter 14, it talks about this very event, this very same thing. Verse 19 says that the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 16,000 stadia, which is 184 miles. Whenever Christ returns... He is coming and he will literally kill the Antichrist, the false prophet, and those nations that were subjected to his leadership. Those who served him, who worshipped him as God. He's going to literally slaughter those nations. It uses this imagery of a wine press where the grapes are being stepped on and the and the wine is being pressed out of the grapes. So it will be when Christ returns and he destroys his enemies, their blood is going to flow in the streets. A lot of people like to think that when the rapture happens that everything's just great and then the trumpet's going to sound, all the Christians are going to disappear, then the world's going to be in chaos for seven years. That's just simply not what the Bible says. But when he does return, he's going to rapture his church and then he's going to declare war against his enemies. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, which is the Antichrist, spoken in earlier chapters, and we talked about him in earlier episodes, and the kings of the earth with their armies. We talked, again, we mentioned this a few episodes ago. The flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Remember when we talked about the seven trumpets. At that sixth trumpet, the Antichrist is going to gather all the armies of the earth and the kings that followed him and were in submission to him, and they're going to gather at the valley of Armageddon, and the battle of Armageddon is going to take place in that actual geographical location, and the Antichrist is going to make war, and Jesus is going to answer that war cry by destroying the Antichrist, the beast, the and the false prophet, and then his armies. Let's continue to read. Verse 20, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. So when Christ returns, the Antichrist, his false prophet, who 
demanded that the nations worship him and they would persecute those who refused to worship him. It says that this, this beast is going to be captured and the false prophet. Then it says these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The lake of fire, which is the eternal damnation separated from God, the Antichrist and the false prophet will be the first ones thrown into the lake of fire. And then verse 21, it says, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Some people like to say that this passage here isn't literal. Some like to say that it's symbolic of what Jesus did on the cross, but that is extremely sloppy hermeneutics. The scripture gives very specific detail that Jesus is going to come and literally do these things at the end of the age, whenever his kingdom manifests in every sphere of influence on the earth. Jesus is going to literally take dominion and authority over every nation on the planet. When Jesus came the first time, he came to save the souls of mankind, to bring salvation to man in a spiritual sense, that we are spiritually saved and set free. Whenever he comes the second time, he is going to come to save not just the spirit, but he is going to physically take dominion over the earth, and people's physical bodies are going to be resurrected and redeemed. When he came the first time, he redeemed the spirit. When he comes the second time, he's going to completely redeem the whole earth. Now, verses 11 through 21 speaks of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is really the, the high point of all of human history. Uh, Jesus is seen as he's approaching Jerusalem on a white horse. Uh, he's going to return in the context of a military conflict centered around Jerusalem. You read the Old Testament, Joel chapter 3, chapter 12, Zechariah chapter 12, chapter 14, Zephaniah chapter 3. We can see a lot of this being spoken about in the Old Testament prophecies. Whenever you got to remember, whenever Peter was talking about the return of Christ, he said you've got to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. We need to remember what they said. And the Old Testament prophets, that's obviously who Peter's talking about, they spoke many, many times about the day of the Lord and how he was going to redeem Israel. Israel, all the ways that he was going to restore Israel and restore Jerusalem and the things that were going to be done in Jerusalem in those days. He's going to fulfill those prophecies at his second coming. That's one reason why Israel rejected him when he first came is because he didn't fulfill the prophecies that the Old Testament prophet said he was going to. But they didn't understand that that wasn't the point of his first coming to the earth. The Messiah first came to settle the spiritual account, and whenever he comes the second time, he's going to settle the physical account and take full control of the earth. That's what Israel was looking for 2,000 years ago, and that's what he's going to do on this day. He's going to march as a warrior king uh, during the greatest time of human history as the earth receives the Messiah and sees the effect of his leadership in fullness the end of this chapter where it talks about the the birds eating the flesh of of the armies that he slays, that he slaughtered. It speaks about that in Isaiah uh, 18, in Ezekiel 39. Matthew 24 speaks about that. Ezekiel chapter 39 even says that the number of the slain will be so great that it'll take seven months to bury them. It is the final battle of all of human history. This passage talks about it. The victor is Jesus Christ. Whenever you hear a Christian say, I know life may be hard right now, but I've read the end of the story. The end of the story for the Christian is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, is going to have victory. And he is going to give victory to all those who submit to him. 
Now we get to chapter 20. Uh, This passage here is actually the chapter that kind of divides the different eschatology perspectives and beliefs. We've talked about amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism. And those three different unique perspectives are all determined by what one believes about Revelation chapter 20. It speaks of the thousand-year reign, or what we call the millennial reign. Remember, all millennialism would read chapter 20, and they wouldn't believe that this is literal here on earth. All millennialism would read Revelation chapter 20 and say that is just speaking about once we die and go to heaven. That would be considered the millennial reign. A post-millennialist would say that uh, chapter 20 happens before Jesus comes back. So a post-millennialist would say the thousand-year reign is not at a literal thousand years, but it is a literal time in history where the world is perfect, the world is Christianized, there's no wars or rumors of wars, where the gospel completely changes the earth, and once the whole world is Christianized and everything is in submission to Jesus, then Jesus comes back at the end of the millennial reign. Therefore, they're called post-millennialists, meaning that Jesus comes back after the millennial reign. We can still be in partnership with people who believe in all millennial viewpoint or a post-millennial viewpoint. What we teach, what we believe, is what's called premillennialism, which we believe that the Bible very specifically shows us that Jesus comes at the beginning of the millennial reign, and when he comes, then he will establish a thousand-year millennial reign. That's the way we teach this. That is what historically the church has believed. It's one that I personally think is very obvious in Scripture, that this happens after Jesus returns to the earth and he kills the Antichrist and and he defeats his enemies. Look here in chapter 20. Let's go ahead and read it. And as we read this and we have an understanding with what Jesus previously taught in the Gospels, what the apostles taught the early church, we've gone through almost every chapter of Revelation and now we're here reading Revelation chapter 20, which speaks about when Jesus returns to the earth. Let's see what it says. So after he returns in power and glory in the air, he defeats the Antichrist, he defeats the false prophet, he destroys those who worship the beast and gave themselves to him, Then chapter 20, verse 1 says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon. Now remember, the dragon is speaking of Satan, not just the Antichrist or the false prophet. Uh, It's not symbolic for anything except for the literal devil, Satan, Lucifer. Verse 2 says, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, the serpent which was in the garden where Adam and Eve were. It says he seized the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for 1,000 years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So what we know so far When Jesus comes back, then he is going to bind Satan and he is going to cast him into the pit or into hell for 1,000 years. Verse 4 says this, Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast 
or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. I know that this causes some questions to arise in our minds well, why would he bind Satan for a thousand years then let him out? First, what's the purpose of the first resurrection or the second resurrection? And as these questions come up, let's go ahead and address them. Let's talk about them. Because we already know what Jesus said, this makes absolute perfect sense. That when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a resurrection. And at this resurrection, those who did not submit to the Antichrist, didn't take the mark of the beast, they're going to literally come to life. And for a thousand years, it says that they're going to rule and reign with Jesus here on this physical earth. This earth isn't going to be destroyed as soon as Jesus comes back. But when he comes, those who were resurrected, those who were raptured, are going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. Those who died without Christ, they haven't resurrected yet. Uh, We're going to read about their resurrection uh, later in the chapter. But at the first resurrection, those who are raised are going to rule and reign with Christ. And the second death, which is eternal damnation, hell, will have no power over those who are resurrected at the first resurrection. It says, but they will become priests of God and they're going to reign with him for a thousand years. It's during this thousand years that Jesus is going to fulfill every promise that was made to Israel. The Messiah is going to rule and reign. There will be no more war. There will be no more famine. There will be no more pestilence. The world is going to be submitted to Jesus. The prophecy that says that the whole earth is going to be full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The glory of God is going to fill the earth during this time. Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. He will teach the earth his ways and his priests, those who are raptured, those saints through the The years through the centuries are going to rule and reign with him. Now, those who are alive during the millennial reign are those who didn't take the mark of the beast, who didn't worship the Antichrist, but they also were not born-again Christians who were raptured and caught up with Christ in the air. Notice Jesus doesn't kill every living person on earth when he returns. He kills those who took the mark of the beast and who followed and worshiped the Antichrist. But there are going to be many on the earth who didn't follow the Antichrist, who didn't take the, the mark of the beast, and they're going to enter into the millennial reign in their earthly unresurrected bodies and they're going to live during that period while Jesus is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem and the resurrected saints are going to rule and reign with him and then at the end of that thousand years look at verse 7 and when the thousand years are ended Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog to gather them for battle their number is like the sand of the sea and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Some wonder why God is going to do it this way. How he's going to establish a thousand years of peace and blessing. Almost like a garden of Eden state. Why in the world would he allow the devil to come again? And I believe we can find the answer in scripture. It's the same question as why did God allow Satan? 
Satan in the Garden of Eden. And why did he, uh, why was there the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because Adam and Eve had to make a decision. Would they worship God or would they listen to the lies of the devil? In order for one to be submitted to Jesus, he has to have the option to not live for Jesus. And during the millennial kingdom, there's not going to be an option. Jesus is going to rule and reign as king over the earth. At the end of that thousand year reign, Satan is going to deceive the nations once more. Uh, they're going to have a decision whether they submit to Jesus or they follow the lies of Satan. And instead of there being a long, drawn-out war, battle, fire is going to, in that instant, in that moment, destroy Satan for all eternity, and he is going to be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. And then after that moment, what's called the great white throne judgment is going to take place. Verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne judgment, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. It's what Jesus spoke about, how everything that's done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. It says, And the sea gave up their dead and who were in it. Death and Hades, or hell, gave up the dead who were in them. Remember earlier in the chapter, it says that those who are resurrected at the first resurrection won't be affected by the second death, but though there were some that were still dead that were not resurrected. At the end of the millennial reign, all those who are in hell, all souls are going to stand before the judgment of God, the great white throne judgment seat. It says they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and hell, or Hades, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I know that's a lot, but to simplify this, we read Matthew 25, we read about the judgment of God at the end of the age and the events leading up to it. We have Jesus coming back, rapturing his church, saving uh, the saints. Then he destroys the Antichrist and the false prophet and all the nations that submitted to him. He cast the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. And those that were slaughtered because they submitted to, to the Antichrist are cast into hell. And then Satan is bound for 1,000 years and Jesus rules and reigns physically on the earth where the saints who were raptured are going to rule and reign with him. And those who did not submit to the Antichrist, yet were not born again, are going to live on the earth and see Jesus physically rule and reign from Jerusalem. And the saints are going to be ministers of God to those nations of the earth. And at the end of the thousand year reign, Satan is going to be released after he was bound for that thousand years. And he is going to tempt the nations and he's going to surround the holy city. He's going to surround Jerusalem and God is going to send fire from heaven, consume the demonic powers and Satan himself and cast them into the lake of fire where the false prophet and the antichrist are and they're going to be tormented day and night. And then at the end of that event, there's going to be what's called the great white throne judgment where those who are alive are going to stand before God and hell and all those who had died who were not with Christ, those who had died without Christ are going to stand before God and they're going to be judged. Matthew 24 says the sheep and the goats are going to be separated and the goats he is going to cast into the lake of fire. He's going to cast into the outer darkness. And that's the event Revelation chapter 20 speaks of whenever they are judged and those who are in hell stand before God. He judges them and then he casts them into the lake of fire, which was originally made for Satan and his angels. 
those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, those who have not accepted Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will spend eternity separated from God in the lake of fire where Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are also in torment for all eternity. This is the type of thing that a lot of people don't like to think about where the you know people in human reasoning will start saying, oh, God's cruel for doing this or that. That doesn't change the reality of an eternal lake of fire where all who reject Jesus are going to spend eternity. And that's what Revelation chapter 20 is speaking of. It speaks of the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign, and then the judgment at the end end of that thousand year reign where everyone is going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God and answer for the life that they lived. Some are going to be recorded in the Lamb's book of life and they're going to be made righteous by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Others who rejected Christ are going to have to suffer the consequence of rejecting Jesus. This passage gives greater detail and gives us understanding of what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 25, the judgment seat of Christ. There are so many passages of the Bible that speak of this event, that speak about the millennial reign and the kingdom. There's just so many. It, it, it would be extremely hard in one episode just to go through every passage that speaks about this. Uh, I encourage you to go through, read some of these, email me. Uh, I would be happy to send you a whole list of, of these different chapters that speak about this event. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, uh, chapter 16. In fact, I'll read Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9. It says, They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 65 verse 20, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but only a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Meaning that that during the millennial reign, people's not going to be dying early. They're going to live long, long lives, and there's going to be prosperity and health and life. Ezekiel 48 verse 39, The city shall be 8,000 cubits round about, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. Being that Jesus will literally be in that city. Psalm 46, 8 through 9. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. Jesus is going to literally do these things. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. These are the things that's going to be fulfilled when Jesus establishes his millennial kingdom. Romans 8, the New Testament passage says, and if children speaking about born-again believers being his children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. On that day, we're going to be glorified with Christ. So many passages, Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 8, uh, Psalm 22, Psalm 24, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 4 and 11 and 32 and 35 and 56 and 60, uh, 66, Daniel chapter 2, Hosea chapter 6, Joel chapter 2. I literally could go on and on and on about passages that speak about the restoration of Israel, about Jerusalem, about Jesus physically ruling and reigning uh, on the earth and reestablishing and redeeming the earth. The Bible tells us that when Christ returns to the earth, he's going to establish himself as 
as king in Jerusalem sitting on the throne of David. Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 32 through 33. It's because of the unconditional covenants. It demands because of God. God cannot lie. He doesn't lie. He fulfills every promise. And it's those unconditional covenants demand a literal physical return of the Messiah to establish a kingdom. The covenant with Abraham promised Israel a land of prosperity and and a ruler who's going to rule with spiritual blessings and physical blessings. The covenants of the Old Testament speaks about Israel's restoration and occupying the land with a ruling king. The Davidic covenant, the covenant made with David, promised that Israel would have a king from David's line that would rule forever and ever and end all wars, uh, giving the nation rest, uh, rest from all their enemies and their persecutors. Second Samuel, and this is a topic that really we should probably spend a lot longer than than what time allows. But at his second coming, these covenants and these promises that God made will be fulfilled as Israel, and Israel not being just ethnic Jews, but Israel being the offspring of Abraham, the the covenant people of God, those who are in covenant with God through his son Jesus, are going to be gathered from the nations. They're going to uh, be restored and blessed, and that's what's going to happen here in this time. He restores and redeems all things. As much as I hate to say it, that truly is all the time uh, that we can spend in this one episode. And really, I know that there's stu- you are probably left with more questions than you had before we read this passage. That's a good thing. The purpose of this episode, and even this whole podcast, isn't to necessarily try to convince you of what we're saying. And there's so much knowledge to be gained in these passages that we can't communicate uh, just in in a podcast. My desire is that your heart would burn for revelation on these events. This a quick overview of these chapters would cause you to dive in deep and study and seek out what the Holy Spirit is saying through the scriptures that, that's been given to us as a revelation. Next week, we'll end the book of Revelation by reading Revelation 21 and 22, which speaks of the beginning of all eternity. And these two chapters is what gives us the greatest insight of what our eternity is actually going to look like. So I'm excited to get that next week. If you have any questions, any comments, anything that you want further understanding or you want some more chapters, uh, you want to go in greater detail about this topic or other topics, please feel free to email me at pastorjgunter at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-J-G-U-N-T-E-R at gmail.com. I would love to further this conversation with you if you are hungry for more. With that being said, let's go ahead and pray and end today's episode. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your rule, for your kingdom, and that we get to be a part of it. God, I pray that you would make us wise, that you would give us revelation as we uh, anxiously and zealously, passionately await the return of Jesus Christ. And as we await, let us not be found sluggish or lazy, but that we would be faithful to do what you have called us to do to further the kingdom, to preach the gospel, and to be faithful with the message of Jesus Christ. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.